This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, my geeselings, take two of this introduction because the last time I forgot to turn on my mic, so I'm just going to pretend that I haven't already said this and gone through all of it. But this episode is with Professor Richard Kimberly Heck of Brown University. We have already had one conversation. It was episode five, in which we talked broadly about the philosophy of pornography. Talking to Ricky is great because their command of the literature is just amazing. And what makes it all the more amazing is that their primary focus of interest historically uh, has been logic and the history of logic. So I can only imagine that talking to them about logic would be downright scary. But in this episode, episode 17, we go deeper into the philosophy of pornography because our first episode was much more of an introduction to the topic, what it is that a philosopher of pornographer of pornography might do, uh, the aesthetics of pornography, some concerns about dealing with it just as an academic, since it's clearly a or can be a controversial topic. In this episode, however, we go much more, we go over much more of the nitty gritty. And by that, I mean, porn villains, monstrous female sexuality, anal sex, the ethics of sexual fantasies and kinks, and the transformative power of queer pornography, among other things like uh, consent or the problem of authenticity in porn. And while I mean, I obviously knew that anal sex and consent were things, I had never ever considered them from a, a serious philosophical point of view. Anyway, so I, I find this episode much more engaging than the first one, even though, again, I think the first one, episode five, is probably my best show to date. Uh, so I guess I think 17 is the best show to date. By way of apology, however, I mentioned for the second time in 17 episodes, the first one being with my dad, Ernst Becker's The Denial of Death. And it's not a book that I particularly like or anything. I, I read it once maybe 10 years ago. But what I reference, and I mean, it was topical, I guess, is that the author hypothesizes that man fantasizes about sucking his own penis as a way or as an expression of his desire to sort of repeat himself over and over again. Um, he wants to like reproduce himself and live forever. And by repeating this for the second time, uh, I'm clearly destined to repeat myself like the man sucking his penis or the snake eating its tail over and over again for however long I continue doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. Without further ado, I hope you really enjoy this episode because I did. I really enjoyed our last conversation, like I said before, and 
I think I ended it saying, wow, we really only got through about a quarter of what I had written down. But by mm-hmm. the end of our conversation, I saw that, or I figured we'd gotten about to about a tenth of what we could have talked about. And then you just sent me the syllabi to two of your classes, mm-hmm. uh, philosophy of pornography and philosophy of sex. And now I realized that we have scratched uh, far less of the surface than I'd even realized because there's really an extensive literature around all sorts of topics that I hadn't even known were, were topics in Mm -hmm. academia. But one of the things I did do in the past few days is I watched uh, the mirror game, Uh which is one of the pornographic films you suggested. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately grasped the the feminist element of it in mm-hmm. that, one, it, it depicted a, a healthy relationship uh, between the protagonist and her husband. Uh, it was also they, supposed to be a film. I mean, there were mm-hmm. themes with yeah. mirrors and, and there was attention paid to filmography, but... I'm wondering if there's anything you think I might have missed that really makes it, at least for the topics of our conversation, an exemplar of feminist for to- feminist pornography. Um, you know, I think I think it's that film um, is. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a strange story, right? I mean, it's the, yeah. Do you the want to recapitulate it? Healthy until yeah. I mean, so the, I mean, there, so there is this married couple, and they, you know, the relationship is portrayed as you know, thriving and and so forth, and but then she goes into this occult bookstore and comes across this book, which she ends up buying and casting a spell on herself and turning herself into some kind of, I don't know what she turns into, but her eyes shine and uh, a sex she, fiend. Yeah. She turns or into like, yeah. So after that, the relationship isn't so healthy, but um, you know, I think in, in many ways, I think what, what Angie's trying to do in these films is to, I mean, that one's a, a bit different from some of the others because it's so fantastical. Um but I think she's trying very much in that one to kind of play with the sort of femme fatale uh, trope that you see in a lot of, you know, even Hollywood films. So I think that film could be compared to a lot of um, uh, Hollywood movies in which women become these sort of... Uh, monstrous kind of figures. I actually had a student for the class this semester um, write a, her final paper on the the sort of monstrous theme of female sexuality that you see in lots of, <clears throat> excuse me, lots of um, places. I mean, not, not, you know, pornography being in a way the, the last of them. Um, so, I think that that sort of theme is pretty common in in Western literature about women's sexuality. So I think Angie was trying to, in a way, kind of tell that story from the point of view of the of the woman character, um, rather when, than when you say, oh sorry, go, no, go ahead, that's fine. When when you say monstrous 
feminine or female sexuality, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, Dentata. I don't. I think that there's a movie by that name, but I also think it's some old urban legend mm-hmm. or myth where the vagina has teeth in it that will yeah, bite off yeah, the male penis. Yeah. But are is there anything in particular you're referring to? Because I haven't really thought of feminine sexuality as monstrous. I'm trying to remember. Um, so I think there is this sort. I mean, so that that's a that's one kind of classic version of this. Um, but I, I think the. Um, I think there's the the monstrous element. I think is a kind of outgrowth of the sort of woman as temptress kind of model that, of course, goes back right. to the very earliest um, Judeo-Christian uh, thought about sexuality. So, I think in in many ways, I think you see sort of sexually. Um, what's the word I want? Uh, kind of women who are who are very sexual and kind of want sex and enjoy sex are often portrayed as kind of dangerous in various ways um and the the monstrous element is just sort of a you know the 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 end point of that in some sense um I'm trying to remember what this i can't even remember which student it was although you know you get 35 papers and they all sort of blur together in your head i'm trying to remember kind of the themes that she picked out but at the moment it's it's slipping my mind um but she talked about you know vampire stories and things like that Mm -hmm. um with with women characters in them um that's another version of this yeah i can see though thinking about it now how in the mirror game that is kind of turned on its head because when she cast this spell one it's sort of a a female emancipation tale in a sense because mm-hmm. she's losing her inhibitions that have been placed on her elsewhere and then the sex scene i think there's like there are three maybe sex scenes in the mm-hmm. movie that was that was one of the very jarring things for me mm-hmm. so i sat down to watch this with a quart of ice cream. I was uh-huh. going to pay attention to it and I'm, I'm enjoying the plot. And then 20 minutes in the sex comes and there's like a 10 minute sex scene mm-hmm. and I was getting into the plot and it really uh-huh. threw me off. And yeah. so just as an aside, I was wondering if that's kind of one of the reasons that the porn film isn't around as much anymore mm-hmm. is that it's kind of a, a jarring viewing experience, mm-hmm. but Anyway, so in the sex scene, the first sex scene, she casts the spell and then she comes up the stairs while her husband's asleep Mm -hmm. and he gets up and sees her walk into the room and she walks to him and then just sort of knocks him back onto the bed and then they have sex. And she doesn't seem like the villain. It seems more like she is coming to terms with her own power on some level. And then there's an extensive masturbation scene when she's alone. Mm-hmm. And I can see how how that ties into this uh, same idea of her empowerment. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a it's a sort of she she both becomes kind of sexually empowered, but she sort of pays for it with her soul in a way. Um, yeah, I think the um, 
in that film, I do think the sex. So actually, when Angie came to talk to the class, she she mentioned that she herself, in some ways, enjoys. Well, I think in many ways, enjoys the plot oriented parts of filmmaking more than she enjoys shooting sex. That she has, I think, over time, become much more of a storyteller than you know just you know shooting sex scenes for the sake of shoot, of shooting sex. I think in that film a little less so than some of her other films the sex scenes while they you know are an integral part of the story they don't develop the story kind of as much as in say gone um which is a a very different film of hers where the the story is in a way told through the sex scenes those you know, in a, in a, in, I think in Mirror Game, the sex scenes could be a lot shorter and it wouldn't really affect the storytelling that much. Whereas I think in Gone, it's, you know, you, you really would lose a lot if you were to take them out. So one of the topics in your philosophy of pornography class that this links to, uh, interestingly to me, is the porn villain. So mm-hmm. in you mentioned earlier monstrous female sexuality and in this case the protagonist is monstrous in some way but it's Mm -hmm. it's more has more of a positive valence to it but the porn villain in most pornography usually strikes it's usually a man well that's not always true because i mean stepsister pornography i know is very Mm -hmm. big right now and Mm -hmm. that's a whole other can of worms yeah. but it involves the stepsister to seductress but it's typically the porn villain is the man who's i don't know uh running the casting couch or mm-hmm. extorting yeah. women for sex yeah. but i thought uh, some of the some of the titles were interesting so one of the paper was called choke on it bitch porn yeah. studies extreme gonzo and the mainstreaming of hardcore and then what this professional porn villain can teach us about sex and consent. Mm-hmm. So what does the porn villain have to teach us? So, you know, I think, so those, those papers are, I, w- I won't talk specifically about those papers though. The, the one, the first one you mentioned choke on it bitches by a guy named Stephen Madison, who has written a, a lot about, so the kind of porn studies movement has often, in a way, because just because of the politics of the thing, found it very difficult to criticize uh, pornography because you're trying to, you know, on, uh, in a, on one hand, you have to kind of fight this battle to just defend the legitimacy of studying pornography as an academic enterprise. And so to kind of criticize it, it can feel uncomfortable uh, for people sometimes. And so Madison has really taken that on himself to try to use some of the resources that have been developed in porn studies to to give an articulate criticism of 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 what he calls extreme gonzo the the porn villain one is is interesting i think because it involves it actually has to do with this very specific website and and um, pornography creator i can't remember his the name he goes by it's been a while since i read that paper um, but he produces, um, content involving things like a man breaking into a woman's house and raping her. Um, and sometimes like, 
killing her even. Um, <laughs> so, you know, quite um, uh, violent uh, fantasies. Um, and what, you know, I, th- I think a lot of times it can be difficult for people to well, let me be, let me just I'll, I'll make a kind of broad claim and then maybe try to defend it a little bit. So many people have really out there sexual fantasies. It's not at all unusual. I mean, the the kind of typical one that everyone kind of knows about is women having fantasies about being raped. But lots of people have you know, really out there sexual fantasies involving things that they would never themselves want to experience, not really interested in doing, but for whatever reason, the fantasy kind of does it for them. And so they, you know, use it for the usual sorts of for purposes that one would use sexual fantasy for. And so there's a, there's a whole like other literature that we actually do talk about in the philosophy of sex course quite a bit about the kind of ethics of of sexual fantasy. Some people, Hmm. you know, so, I mean, in a way, the the kind of woman who fantasizes about being raped, a lot of people have, you know, kind of concerns, various kinds of ethical concerns about that, but they kind of can excuse it because they think, you know, well, women are oppressed anyway. And so, you know, they tell some story that begins with that. But if you kind of look at the flip side and look at a kind of man who has fantasies about raping a woman, um, women sometimes have fantasies like this too. It's There's actually not a huge gender difference on this. Um, people become very, very uncomfortable because they think, you know, the first thing people often think is, well, this person really does want to go kind of rape people or they think that you know something else is wrong uh that, that someone would have fantasies like that and you know I, I i certainly think that it's possible i mean for for fantasizing about such things to be problematic but for most people you know at least the you know the the empirical literature that i know on this you can't predict very much about someone by knowing whether they have fantasies like that or not it's you know it's, there are, there are extremely weak correlations uh, that you can that, that people have found, but they're very very weak. And so my own my own attitude about this tends to be that there's there need not be anything morally problematic about fantasies like that as long as they stay in the realm of fantasy and people distinguish fantasy from reality. And so there's that whole issue, and then you kind of overlay that onto the pornography question. So the kind of pornography that this porn villain makes is basically kind of dramatic tellings of these kinds of very out there sexual fantasies. And I think part of what um, um, Chantelle Tibbles is the person who wrote that, she's a a sociologist, she's interested in the question of sort of what we make of fantasies like this and how I think how that, how the discomfort we feel with fantasies like that can affect our viewing of pornography, our reaction to certain kinds of pornography. In fact, I think a lot of the time, it seems to me that the, a lot of the debate over 
so-called violent pornography is really a debate about certain kinds of sexual fantasies and people kind of aren't realizing that that's what they're actually you know what what's actually disturbing them is the fantasy that's being portrayed and not really got very much to do with the pornography itself it's it's you know it's the underlying fantasy that's bothering people yeah i'm particularly curious about now the ethics of fantasies because that's something that i haven't have haven't ever considered it i would have just imagined that so long as one kept something to oneself and didn't act on it there was no real ethical component to it at all in particular i'm struggling to see what the ethical concern of fantasizing about about being raped would be i can see that the other way around uh, of the fantasy of raping uh, it might be easier to argue that that's immoral uh, because it's in some way, I don't know. Uh, uh, well, I guess it doesn't have to be misogynistic. It can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is what is the opposite? Misandrogyny? Yeah. Mis- misandrist, misandrist, I think. Mis- yeah. yeah. Misandrist. Uh, but anyway, what what is the ethical so i mean i do i i should say i kind of struggle to make sense of this myself in some ways i my own um my own sex education was largely provided through um two books that i discovered while babysitting as a teenager um one was um the Height Report on Female Sexuality, which was done by this woman named Sherry Height, uh, was a very early study of, you know, thousands of women who answered these surveys. And um, But the other one was a book called My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday, which was, I think, published in 1972, so 50 years ago, um, which was the first really serious study of women's, of women's sexual fantasies. And Friday makes kind of the, the, the theme of the book in many ways is that um, the relationship between f- sexual fantasies and kind of one's ordinary life is extremely complicated and you can't read very much off what someone fantasizes about. At the, at the time, it was a pretty common view that, that women secretly wanted to be raped. Um, this was a kind of broadly kind of Freudian sort of psychoanalytic uh, idea, um, though I think its roots were, were deeper. And so Friday was kind of fighting uh, that to some extent. But part of what drives that, um, that discussion is that various people, but I think kind of most famously, uh, Catherine McKinnon, have argued that Part of what maintains the system of gender inequality is the is the fact that um, dominance in men is eroticized, whereas submission in women is eroticized. So, um, I think if you think about this for a minute, you can see that this is that this is true, right? That the kind of demure, kind of retiring, shy woman is seen as very erotic, whereas forceful, assertive kind of women are seen as bitchy and, you know, masculine and conversely for men. So 
one might worry that um, fantasizing about rape is the sort of extreme end of this, because uh, that that's the kind of you know maximally uh, what word do I want? Um, you know, situation where men are at their kind of most sexually dominant and women are at their most sexually submissive is in 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 raping and being a victim of rape. So I think in, you know, part of what drives concern about this, I think, is that by engaging in such fantasizing, one is kind of reinforcing the erotic structure of, of gender dominance. Um, and now, you know, I, I, I think one, I, it's it's far from clear to me that that's true. I think it's certainly possible that um, um, people's having these kinds of fantasies is a reflection of these kind of social arrangements. Uh, but whether it helps, whether individual people fantasizing about this thing sustains those kinds of social structures, I think is is far from clear uh, to me. Um, and so most of the people, at least the most interesting person I think I've read recently on this is hap actually happens to be an old friend of mine from graduate school, Susan Dwyer, um, who goes at it from a more uh, kind of Aristotelian virtue ethics sort of uh, angle. So she tries to disown any interest in a kind of consequentialist way of thinking about this so that fantasizing about these things would have bad consequences. She thinks that fantasizing about things like the this is a, how does she put it? In one of her papers, she says it, 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 it sort of endangers your character in a way. So Aristotelian virtue ethics people are big on the idea that moral evaluation has to do oftentimes with the character of the person uh, who's involved and less with consequences and things like that. So she thinks it's kind of makes you a worse person in a way uh, that you would have fantasies like this so that you shouldn't cultivate them. Um, she's aware as anyone else is that we're rarely in control, you know, it's kind of a famous thing that sex therapists will say that we're not responsible for what turns us on. Um, that's just, you know, <laughs> nobody, you know, you're just not. Um, but I think Sue's attitude is, but you can decide whether to cultivate that in a way or not. Uh, you could, you know, to some extent you can pick and choose what you choose to be, you can't change how you react to it, but you can decide whether you seek it out or kind of actively pursue it or not. Um, so that's the kind of, um, that's the sorts of reasons that people will give uh, to to have concerns about these kinds of fantasies. So this discussion of Aristotelian ethics raises a kind of a meta question about this whole endeavor for me. So when I uh, arrived at Columbia, I was under the impression that philosophy was in the business of answering questions. So it was in the business of telling us what mathematical objects are, for instance. Mm -hmm. But something that Heim Gaifman really instilled in me and eventually convinced me of is that philosophy is not so much about answering questions uh, because all philosophical programs eventually fail, but 
it's about providing insight mm -hmm. into these questions that we're asking. So I don't think that when people think pornography, they think philosophy. When they think philosophy, they, they don't think pornography. The mm -hmm. two don't appear to be related at all. So I'm wondering what philosophy provides to this discussion. I understand mm -hmm. why a sociologist might be writing about what the professional porn villain can teach us about sex and consent. And I'm wondering if I'm on the right track that yeah. it is kind of just giving us insight into maybe how how the sociologist is evaluating the, the problem. So I, I tend to share this kind of attitude. I mean, I, I do think there are I, I do think there's such a thing as philosophical progress and that sometimes questions get <laughs> maybe that was a bit bleak resolved but 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 generally i mean of course that's right i mean the 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 kinds of questions that philosophers talk about don't tend to have easy answers i remember when i was a ta as a, as a graduate student myself judy thompson was teaching a kind of introductory philosophy course at mit and the last day of class a student raised their hand and said professor thompson all these questions we've been discussing are very interesting but when are you going to tell us what the answers are and mm -hmm. uh, half and half the class laughed right and i thought it was striking that it was only half the class right who, mm -hmm. who laughed the other half was waiting just as this person was to be told what the answers were and i can't i wish i could remember what judy said because it it was at the time i think i was laughing too much to pay attention but um so what does philosophy have to add here? And I, I think, you know, I think in many cases, I'm not a person who sort of thinks as philosophy in the business uh, as being in the business of conceptual analysis or anything like that. But I do think in many cases, there really is just a kind of tremendous lack of clarity about the terms in which the debate is being conducted. This is all the more, I mean, my favorite version of this nowadays is, is um, you know, in this ballpark is kind of talk about consent and the place of consent. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. And, you know, it's, I think one of the things that, that we've seen in that is that, so, I mean, again, this is just sort of my view about this, but one shouldn't underestimate the progress that the notion of consent kind of, in putting the notion of consent in the center of sexual ethics, that was a tremendously important thing uh, to happen, you know, 50 years ago or so. I mean, before that, rape was largely seen as a property crime. So it was a crime either wow. against the, the woman's father because she would be less marriageable uh, if she was raped or it was a crime against her husband who's, you know, has the exclusive right to, to this woman's sort of sexual sexuality. The idea that, that sort of women might be in charge of their own sexuality was actually a hard one. Sorry. Um, let me just, um, I mean, it, that, that took doing, uh, to, to even think that the consent would be a factor, uh, here, but it's become so dominant that, that it's kind of the only thing, it's the only word that people have. So consent has become an almost programmatic notion where people 
consent is kind of whatever has to be in place for sex to be morally permissible. And so the notion of consent has been stretched kind of enormously far from its origins. And I think many, in, in way, and in ways that kind of can make it hard to sort of see what might be wrong with consensual sex in some cases. And I think that's become more and more clear over the last, I don't know, say 10 years or so, that, that sex can be consensual and still be profoundly harmful and even traumatic uh, for one of the parties who are involved. And I think in, in many, in some ways that has taken a lot of doing to try to get people to see that because people are kind of so tied to the idea that consent is not only a necessary condition uh, for, for morally permissible sex, but that it has to be a necessary condition as well. And so you know, you get people talking about things like affirmative consent and enthusiastic consent and ongoing consent. And I don't have a problem with the kind of underlying idea, but framing it in terms of consent, I think, ends up being really unhelpful because, you know, if you go in to have surgery, say, and some, and, you know, you sign a consent form, you don't have to be enthusiastic about <laughs> having the surgery. I mean, either you consent to the surgery or you don't. Same for getting, you know, think about the kind of ordinary places that we talk about consent, sharing of medical information, having your car searched by the police, you know, surgery, um, you know, all kinds of things like that. And that's kind of where the notion of consent kind of has its natural home. And if you think, if you, if you, the more you kind of try to pack into the notion of consent, I think, and the farther you take it away from this, you know, pre-existing notion, it starts to become, I think, just very hard to kind of keep track of the ethics of the situation. And so my own view, as I think many people nowadays think, is that we really should go back to thinking of consent as a kind of very minimal condition on morally acceptable sex and try to articulate something else that's different from consent that's actually necessary as well if sex is to be okay. So I think philosophy is one of the you know, it's not that only philosophers can do this kind of work, but I think philosophies, philosophers are particularly well trained to do that kind of work, to try to look at, you know, I mean, sometimes people nowadays talk about conceptual engineering. I don't personally like to talk that way. Um, but in here, I think it's really a matter of kind of thinking deeply about the moral structure of these kinds of situations and trying to identify you know, features of different kinds of situations that are ethically concerning or ethically relevant. And as I say, I think philosophers are just quite, you know, we're well trained to do that kind of thing, to kind of think through conceptually fraught sorts of areas and make some kind of contribution. So beyond the minimal condition of consent for morally permissible sex that you just mentioned what sort of thing do you have in mind for this stronger necessary condition so um and probably not like a contract yeah, signed by so, six witnesses yeah so i think there one oh, I'm, I'm having trouble here my coffee keeps dripping down my face um so one thing that people have articulated, which I think is definitely a step in the right direction, is to distinguish consenting to sex from wanting sex. So if you think, 
this this is a distinction that it turns up in some of the sociological literature, but it also has kind of surfaced in in philosophical literature, especially this woman named Anne Cahill. Um, but consenting to sex is is very different from wanting to have sex. So you can consent to sex that you don't want to have. Um, you can, and there there can be good reasons to do this, and there can be bad reasons to do this. So one a kind of good side version of this would be a case where you're acting out of generosity. So imagine that your partner has had a really bad day at work and, you know, they, you know, you know that certain, you know, say if, if they had a blowjob or you went down on them, then that would make them feel better. It's not kind of what you really would want to do, but you sort of think, you know, it's going to make them feel better, so I will do this for them. It's a kind of giving act um, to do to do this. Other kind of versions might be, you know, if they're going on vacation and you haven't had sex for a while and you know they'd really like to have sex before they go and you could kind of take it or leave it, but you agree to do it, right? So those kinds of cases seem kind of morally okay, uh, but they're, and I think in a way where a lot of this literature starts, I mean, there are, it turns out that it's extremely common in women's experience to have sex, to consent to sex they don't want to have. And there are lots of reasons uh, that that women will do this. Um, usually, I mean, oftentimes it's kind of social pressures that they sort of feel that they've led the guy on or they've let him take them out to dinner or they've done this or that or the other thing and they kind of feel like they owe it to the guy. There are other cases, the really tragic ones are cases where women, I mean, and women will say exactly what I'm about to say, which is they consented to sex so that they wouldn't be raped. Um, I mean, in effect, they realized they were going to have sex one way or the other. They could either consent to it or not. It was going to happen. Uh, so they decide to consent to it. And they, you know, so they definitely do not want to be having sex with this person, but they have consented to do it. Um, so one thing you might think, uh, though I think some of these cases suggest, I mean, the, the kind of generosity cases suggest this isn't enough, is that we should look not just at kind of consent as a matter of permission or agreement, but at something like desire, uh, that in order for sex to be ethical, so this is Anne Cahill's view, uh, for example, that in order for sex to be ethical, it should be driven not just by this kind of agreement, but by it should be shaped by the desires of the people uh, who are involved in the right way. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that is a, you know, I think that gets you a kind of slight feeling of what it might look like to have a, a more articulate, you know, a more demanding view of what's required. That, and so in Cahill's, you know, she's, she's very careful to say, look, it's not just a matter of whether you desire sex or whether you don't desire sex, but a question of what role your desire is playing in shaping the, the interaction. The right. second there thing, are, there are go, go ahead. way more factors like intoxication uh, impairs your ability to distinguish between consent and desire. Yeah. And I think there's actually a guy at Brown named Sam Director who's written some interesting papers on consent and intoxication. Um, um, that's been a 
a theme. I mean, it, you know, for for most, um, you know, most at least people will tell you right that it's impossible to consent to sex if you're intoxicated. Um, but I think Sam and and other many other people, I mean, who've written about this have have you know raised questions about why that should be true. I mean, we you know if you go get a tattoo for example when you're drunk we don't think that the tattoo artist should be prosecuted for tattooing you because you signed a consent form when you were inebriated at least and I don't it might, know lead, might like that. lead to contradictions or nonsense if you have uh, two intoxicated people and then you lead to the conclusion that they have raped one another which just doesn't yeah. seem uh it seems like a twisting of the language yeah, I mean, this is the deepest problem with consent, I think. And this has been pointed out again by many people. There's a really nice p- paper on this, which I don't think he ends up in quite the pl- right place by Jonathan Jenkins of Shikawa, um, that consent is an inherently asymmetrical thing, right? You, when, when there's consent, there is someone who's asking for consent and there's someone who's giving consent. And while lip service is paid to the idea that both sides should consent and so forth, in fact, we all know who's doing the asking and who's doing the consenting in most cases. And that that asymmetry is, I think, itself ethically concerning. Um, and, you know, so I think we would like to try to find a, a kind of ethical structure that wasn't inherently asymmetric in this way. And I think, you know, that's one plus for Cahill's uh, view that... If, you know, her view is that both, you know, in effect, both parties or all parties, if we're talking about more than two people, should want what's happening and their desires should be relevant in the right way to what happens. Um, uh, I think that's, you know, certainly trying to, as my student Rachel Ledden in her dissertation points out, I mean, it's, you know, there's something kind of heteronormative about consent talk, too, because of the um the the asymmetry that i mentioned and the you know fact that it's the, that asymmetry is highly gendered in fact though again sort of lip service is paid to the idea that it's not but in fact it is so consent is a very hot and important topic around college campuses in particular and Columbia University with the the mattress incident uh-huh. uh, a few years ago. It's been sort of at the, the center of that discussion. But it looks like from your syllabus, there's an extensive literature around uh, consent, particularly on college campuses. And uh-huh. one thing in particular, you made a note that there were some and I guess I'm quoting your note, there are some extremely disturbing remarks made by some of the male subjects in the Oskowski and Peterson paper. And what this leads me to wonder is, I mean, you said rape was considered a property crime, which would have been considered uh, not backwards uh, 50 years ago Mm -hmm. or before, but it it suggests that there are still a lot of uh, backwards views, even on college campuses about Mm -hmm. Uh, consent. So I'm curious about what those comments were or what they might have yeah, been Yeah, like. so that paper, um, th- that's, yeah, that, that's a, a very disturbing paper by Jaskowski and Peterson. And they, um, so basically, 
you find a lot of men in, in these studies, and it, you know, it's, it's not, we're not talking about half of men, we're talking about you know, a significant percentage of men who, who make it clear that they, um, they see consent as a kind of box to be checked. Um, and if it can't get checked, then they have strategies for avoiding it. So um, it's not in that paper, but it's in a different, actually, I think it is in that paper. Actually, I, I can't remember anyway, but this will give you the kind of flavor of it. So I can't remember if it's in that paper or not, but they were talking about um, anal sex, um, which is its own sort of interesting topic with pornography and its influence on sexuality. But men, so one guy says, um, women really hate anal sex, so you just got to stick it in there before, and don't ask, right? Don't ask them whether they'll let you do this. You just got to do it. And, you know, and, and that's and that's that. And that's like, <laughs> you, you stick it in there because they hate it? I mean, that's, you know, what kind of warped perspective on sex is this person operating with? And you get sort of comments like that from a lot of the men in these studies. I think the, you know, Jaskowski and Peterson, when I mean, you kind of get, you know, they're trying to maintain a sort of um, academic kind of neutrality and objectivity, but you can tell that they're kind of really deeply disturbed by some of the things that they were hearing. Mm -hmm. You know, ways in which men will, you know, just even, you know, not with anal intercourse, but with vaginal intercourse, just kind of, oh, accidentally, sorry, you know, I guess it's in now, so we might as well go ahead, you know, who sort of manipulate situations in those sorts of ways. And, um, you know, so I, I certainly wouldn't want to give the impression uh, that, you know, everybody's on board with consent, so we don't even have to worry about that anymore. I mean, we do still have to sadly worry about that. Um, but I think it's clear at the same time that, as I said, you get this kind of box checking attitude to sort of once she's consented, you kind of do what you damn well please and kind of she's out of the equation. You know, her body's there, but she's just sort of out of the equation now. So once she's consented, you can do whatever you want with her body. And that's kind of the end of it. And, you know, that's what leads, I think, to a lot of these situations of of women feeling, you know, deeply traumatized uh, by sex that in the that even they may want to have very much wanted to have sex with this person. But the way the sex itself plays out leaves them feeling like they might as well have been, you know, a, a doll or something. That there, there's a really wonderful piece by a woman named Raina Gattuso about about an experience that she had like this that I have my students read, um, where she just says, you know, I, I've never been with somebody where I, you know, just just felt like I might as well not be there. Um, as a human being. Um, and that's, you know, that I, I, I fear that sort of the way we talk about consent gives the impression that that's, that's all it is. I mean, sort of, you just have to check that box and then you kind of go on and do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I think anal sex is very charged in our culture in a way. I don't know if that's because of historical uh, concerns or people, uh, hating on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, 
or if it's just a cultural fixation with uh, poop and butts being bad. But I, I think there was an anal sex dimension to the mattress incident at mm-hmm. Columbia, which is what added to the fervor. Mm-hmm. But I do find myself curious about the anal sex literature, particularly because of all of the papers you cited. Uh, this one had the best title. <laughs> it was by Brianne Foz and Jax Gonzalez, yeah. and it was called The Front Lines of the Back Door, yeah. Navigating Disengagement, Coercion, and Pleasure in Women's Anal Sex Experiences. And I think we already probably touched on the coercion uh, mm-hmm. when you mentioned sort of like the oops or yeah. uh, just stick it in there uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. But what else is going on in this literature? So uh, the I think, so actually the, the one paper, well, actually I published two papers, but one of the papers that I published in this area now has a short section that was largely inspired by that paper. Um, okay. That goes back to some of the things we were talking about last time, the ways that pornography kind of shapes real world sexuality. And one of the things mm-hmm. that's kind of clear, there's a wonderful, there's a kind of lo- huge study of, of American sexual behavior that's done about every decade out of the Kinsey Institute, which I think is at the University of Indiana. I can't remember. Um, but one of the things they've noticed is that the number of people who either have at least tried anal sex or who regularly have anal sex has just shot way up over the last like 20 years. I mean, just huge. Yeah, It surprises me from talking to just my friends and, and peers, how, how common it is. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and uh, it's hard to imagine that pornography doesn't have a, a place in this. Um, yeah. It's, you know, cause it's just so common in, in mainstream pornography and, um, and, and so, you know, one kind of small thing about the, the, the role pornography has here is that you rarely in pornography, do you see the kind of preparation that's needed for, for anal intercourse, you know, lube for, for one thing. And so a, a lot of, uh, women have report like real pain, uh, with anal intercourse. And often the reasons are lack of lubrication, lack of time that's given. I mean, you've, especially if you're not experienced with this, you have to be very slow and, you know, let somebody adjust and, and so forth. And so people don't do this because they, they see, you know, they, they see pornography and it looks like it's sort of, you know, all just as easy for women to have anal intercourse, receptive anal intercourse, it is for them to have vaginal intercourse and you know that's that's just not i mean you know if you're a professional that's one thing but you know if you're not then then that's just not true and so i think that makes it a kind of interesting case study of the way that pornography affects real world sexuality but the the most interesting thing in the in the Foss and gonzalez paper is that they report that that lots of women in their study report what I, I, these are my words, not theirs, a kind of cultural pressure to have anal sex, that they kind of think that this is something that women are expected to do or should do, or at least if your relationship is really serious, it's something that you will do. And so it's not just that, I mean, so it looks as if kind of 
and again, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what would be causing this kind of cultural shift if it wasn't really rooted in pornography. So it looks like pornography has kind of, to some extent, shifted cultural norms around anal sex, not just to destigmatize it, which is a good thing, but to actually make it so that it's kind of considered part of of what one does sexually, just kind of part of ordinary sex. Whereas, you know, when I was in college, at least, you know, 30 years ago, that's just not at all the way things were seen. I mean, there, you know, it wasn't that it was this, I mean, I, that it was like nothing, nothing that anybody ever talked about, but it was certainly not seen as just kind of an ordinary part of, of everyday sexuality. And, you know, it, I don't think it's quite to that stage yet, but it's it's moved a lot in that direction. And it's so again, it, it makes for, a, I think, a kind of really interesting example of ways in which pornography has shaped sexuality. And I think not necessarily to women's benefit. I mean, I think, you know, that there are enough kind of cultural demands on women to act sexually in certain kinds of ways and to sort of throw in another one like this, just, you know, I, I think the way I put it in the paper is that, you know, this is a shift that's happened without much input from women and without much attention really to what women's sexual needs and desires are. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not, bad in itself that there's been a change in sort of sexual norms. What's bad is that it's happened in a kind of very one-sided way. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how it, it anal sex was I don't I don't know if it I I'm sure it's not uh one of the Ten Commandments thou <laughs> shalt not have anal sex, but it was once uh, at least as far as I picture history, a serious sin and then it, it was criminal like, until the Bowers decision. It was criminalized in, in many uh, states, and, and then then it became a a fetish or a kink or something like that. But now, as you mentioned, it's very mainstream. And I was recently watching. I mentioned last week that show Euphoria, uh -huh. and one of the characters begins sort of like a a webcam sort of business, and she attracts clients who she calls her pay pigs who she sort of she belittles while they mm -hmm. masturbate and then also make she also makes them pay her and i also uh, know from talking to people that this actually happens yeah, in real yeah. life uh -huh. and it's something so far from my experience that i mean that's the last thing that i would want yeah. to be is belittled like that but i wonder so you mentioned also Rule 42, I think, of the internet. I mean, anything you can imagine, there's a pornograph pornographic film or comic or something mm -hmm. uh, portraying that. And I wonder what philosophy has to say about that, particularly because I saw a paper that you cited uh, by Thomas Nagel, who I would have thought of as mm -hmm. a very respected by-the-books philosopher, and I was surprised that he was... Uh, writing a paper on a sexual perversion. Yeah. So I think it is, I think, a real mystery still to me why why um, 
I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, sexual fantasy, people have the weirdest sexual fantasies. I mean, and so I was, you know, why do people get off on being humiliated in these ways? Um, One of the first things I saw on the internet, like, well, not one of the first things I saw was in it, on the internet, but one of the first pornographic videos I ever saw as like a 14-year-old was a woman just sitting there and then she pulls up her skirt, spreads her legs, and an octopus comes out of her vagina. And I see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it I mean those things have an effect on you. Obviously that's yeah. stuck with me, but I don't think in 100 years of uh, thinking about what I might find in pornography, that would have come to mm-hmm. mind. And yet there <laughs> it was. very, very strange. I hadn't, hadn't heard of that one. Um, that, yeah, I'm not sure I want to think much more about that. Um, yeah, I mean, so there is, I, there is this whole thing, for example, called small penis humiliation, where women produce these sorts of videos where they just kind of, you know, t- laugh in a way at how small this guy's penis is and so forth and it's yeah they're usually just the women themselves and the the men who watch these may or may not have small penises but they kind of get off on being talked to in these ways and i think you know here i mean i think you know probably one just needs to go deep into the kind of psychological literature on things like this um and I do think there has been some real insight in the in the kind of psychoanalytic literature. Um, I've I've found some interesting things uh, there that throws some light on this, but I'm not sure, honestly, how much philosophy has to contribute to our understanding mm-hmm. the nature of fantasies like this. Other than I think to kind of counsel us again that the relationship between, you know. I think it's important to appreciate that the kinds of emotions that are involved here um, can be erotically powerful, but only when it takes place in a certain kind of safe space, right? That um, So, you know, there's there's a difference between the kind of humiliation that's occurring in cases like this and what you might think of as genuine humiliation. So I'm going to guess that if a man who had, who got off on this kind of thing uh, were to be with a woman in real life who genuinely humiliated him over say the size of his penis or something, it would be no more pleasant for him uh, than it would be for anybody else to be humiliated in various ways. It's only because it's taking place inside a kind of broader structure where there is at least, you know, something that's signaling that this is, this is not all that it appears to be, um, that it, that it's able to be experienced as erotic. So I think in some ways, this is again, the kind of goes back to the idea that, you know, things can turn you on for all kinds of reasons and you're not really in control of that and you need to find a kind and and there are ways in which one can find a kind of safe space to explore the erotic potential of these sorts of things without the dangers that that might otherwise accompany them bdsm obviously is the 
the kind of, I mean, that, that's in effect what we're talking about. This is kind of straying from the realm of philosophy to abject speculation, but I was surprised when you meant, when you said that uh, more typically men with more typical penis sizes are also getting off on these videos, but I can just imagine that watching that video and seeing this other guy get belittled kind of mm -hmm. makes uh, somebody without that uh, problem feel much better about themselves, which might be arousing. But oh. I don't, I, I can't imagine why it turns on somebody who uh, perceives themselves to be suffering from this particular problem. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's also the possibility of kind of projecting yourself. So I think in many cases, uh, th these are sort of, it's, there's no guy there at all. It's just the woman kind of talking to the camera. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I've certainly read of men who say, look, I, you know, I, I am, you know, myself perfectly average size or something, but I like to imagine that I'm not and, you know, be the recipient of this kind of thing. So, you know, imagination, I mean, I think oftentimes, or I don't remember where I first heard this, but it's all another thing that sex therapists will kind of commonly say, which is that the mind is the most powerful sexual organ. And so in order to understand these kinds of, you know, why people are getting off on this, I think you really have to really, you know, think about sort of what the thought process is that's, a, that's attached to it. And that's some, I mean, actually, this does get back to the Nagel paper. I mean, he, that paper is, we often start with that in the philosophy of sex class. And he has, one of the things I like about it is that he pays a lot of attention to what people nowadays call the intentional with a, you know, as, a, as in the sense of intentionality aspects of sexuality, that it's not just a matter of kind of bodily stimulation and all that kind of thing but it's got a lot to do also with you know what you're thinking uh, when you're having sex and uh, the the kind of nagel puts a lot of emphasis on kind of communication and and stuff uh in in his account of sexuality but it's um you know i think that's very important to kind of keep in mind that sex for humans is really a profoundly complex psychological phenomenon and just not, not just a matter of kind of bodily, you know, organ stimulation or something like that. Even, you know, there's a, one of my favorite papers on this is by a guy named Serial Morgan, um, which, which we read in which he talks about cases, um, you know, where, I don't know. I mean, we all know that sex with someone you really care about can be much more powerful than sex with someone you don't have any kind of relationship with. And a lot of that is just, you know, part of it's that you're freer and so forth. But I think part of it is just that, you know, you know that this person you're doing this with is someone that you have certain feelings for and that all, you know, profoundly affects the nature of the sexual experience. Mm -hmm. So, as I try to link together some of the things that we've talked about, uh, so we've talked about the dynamics of consent, uh, the embrace of, or I don't know if embrace is the right word, but uh, 
fetishes, the embrace of fetishes, mm-hmm. I'll just say it, uh, the lack of preparation in anal sex, and then some things we haven't talked about, like fake orgasms. Mm-hmm. That brings me to uh, another topic that I saw, which is, quote unquote, the problem of authenticity mm-hmm. in porn. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the problem of authenticity? Yeah, so this is I find this one quite fascinating actually because one of the things. So if you go back to the kind of early days of feminist pornography in the eighties, um, one of the things that 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 the women who were making this kind of pornography, so Candida Royale, is the was the the the, the most important of these women. One of the things that they were really focused on was the kind of fake moaning that's very kind of famously typical of pornography, right? The sort of mm-hmm. exaggerated sexual response that women are portrayed as having in in pornography. And so they they wanted to replace this with something that was more authentic, right? More true to women's sexual experience. So, you know, not apparently having an orgasm three seconds after the guy, you know, inserts his <laughs> penis, but, you know, clitoral stimulation and the other kinds of things that, that actually tend to produce arousal and an orgasm in women. And so it became a kind of watchword in a way with feminist pornography that it, that it was meant to be more authentic than, than mainstream pornography was, especially in connection with with women's sexual response. And so if if we're thinking about kind of um, uh, what what used to be called all-sex pornography, right, where we're just, in effect, filming sex scenes, you can see why that might be thought to be really important. But some of the people, so Vex Ashley in particular wrote a paper about this. Um, and she makes... Her first name's Vex? Vex, V-E-X, yeah. Uh, it's a, I, I assume a cool it's a name. stage name, um, but uh, yeah. though I don't know um, for sure. I'm not, I don't know her personally. Um, but she makes this these very artsy sorts of films. And she has at least raised the question whether it's really important in a film if a woman has a genuine orgasm as opposed to being able to convincingly portray herself as having had one. And from a filmmaking point of view, you might think, you know, no, really. I mean, if from the point of view of the viewer, it's might as well be that she really had one. I mean, we don't, you know, you don't normally think that was this person really sad when they were crying in the movie? You know, that's not a. But of course, pornography measure. might be. Maybe we should think about pornographic films very different from very differently from Hollywood films. Yeah, and I think and in some ways, the. I mean, this gets back to something we talked about last time about this idea that that a lot. I mean, if you think of pornography as a kind of just window onto a real world happening so that you'd kind of just as well be there and seeing the real thing as seeing a film of it, then you can kind of see why the authenticity issue might be quite important Mm -hmm. to you. But if you're really thinking of yourself as kind of, as Vex does, you know, making a film, you know, that's, 
telling a story, even it might be a short one or something, then maybe you think, no, you know, I mean, the, the sex is part of the story and I want to move the story forward. And even if the point of the story is to arouse the viewer more than it is, you know, to do anything else, you might think as, you know, again, as long as everything is portrayed in a sufficiently convincing way, then that's going to be good enough. And so one way to think of this, you might think that the problem that people like Royale were, were identifying wasn't so much that it wasn't authentic, it's that it was obviously inauthentic and that that's where the problem really lay. And not that, so not that sort of everything needs to be authentic and nobody ever needs to do any acting, but rather that they need to be convincing um, and not just sort mm -hmm. of, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, the problem was that it was obviously faked, not that it wasn't real. So last week, you, or last time we talked, which was last week, you mentioned that sound in pornography was a big topic. And as when you mentioned that, I was thinking, hmm, music. Uh, I should, I wonder what music is going on in pornography. But now that you, now that we've just talked about fake orgasms a bit, I realized that when you were talking about sound in pornography, you might have also been referring to bodily sounds or yeah, uh, moaning, right. that sort of thing. And now that I think about the mirror game, I do not recall there being this nonstop chorus of moans that you might find in a non-feminist pornographic yeah, that's movie. right that's right hmm. yeah and and that's and that i think is so i mean I, this kind of links back to something else we were talking about i can't remember but where i've seen it's not in any of the papers that that were on the syllabus but i've read various other things where women will talk about the kinds of expectations that men have about how women's bodies respond sexually and in, in particular, the kinds of noises they make, right? So that women kind of feel like they're not doing it right somehow if they're not making, you know, if they're not moaning like continuously. And so they kind of, sometimes women will say, you know, they kind of force themselves to do that. They learn the way that their partners are expecting them to respond sexually. And, so again, I mean, I th think this is another way in which, you know, pornography can kind of misshape men's expectations of the way women's bodies respond sexually to the great detriment of, of women. Um, I, might be t I might be totally uh, confabulating this, but, or I don't know if that's the right word, fabricating this, but I seem to recall that there was a Seinfeld episode where maybe it's George, maybe it's Jerry, but, and again, this might just be my imagination, but somebody becomes under the impression that they should be talking dirty when they're having sex. Mm -hmm. And it's probably George. And maybe they say that, maybe he says his penis is like a corn cob or something. And it, <laughs> and it just doesn't, doesn't work out well. But that's, I, I don't know if he, if they get the idea from pornography, mm -hmm. but it's very, easy to see how what's happening in these movies and the sound like talking in particular mm -hmm. uh, get like choke on it bitch that the title yeah. of that of that paper most I, I hesitate to call them good people uh, probably aren't saying uh, choke on it bitch naturally but if they 
see that in a, in a movie, it might more quickly come to their lips if that's what mm-hmm. they think that they're supposed to say or what they, their partner finds yeah. erotic. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, it's, um, and that's, that's a lot of what Madison's talking about in that paper, right? The way, the way in which, um, these sort of, uh, there's a really wonderful piece actually by a, a woman named Violet Blue. She started out as a, um, she worked for a long time for the sex shop Good Vibrations in San Francisco, which was one of the first women owned sex shops in the country. And she now actually does a lot of writing about kind of internet security and stuff like that. Um, but for many, many years, she was a, a she did porn reviewing. Uh, she was both a kind of curator for Good Vibrations, but she also did some independent reviewing of pornography. And she wrote this thing in like 2005 when the kind of rough sex kind of thing in pornography was really getting going. And what she points out in that is that in a kind of BDSM context where everything's been kind of negotiated and people have their you know limits established and safe words and all that other kind of thing, a lot of these kinds of activities can be very enjoyable for people. And um, you know that kind of degrading language, you know, we were just talking about small penis humiliation and so forth, you know, can can be you know hot to people. But what you what you off, but you often you don't really get that context in 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 mainstream pornography. It ends up looking like this is just kind of how things are, right? This is how people talk when they have sex. This is how people act when they have sex. They choke their partners and they slap them and they spank them and they do all these other things. And all of that can be fine, right? I mean, as long as it's been discussed and you know, and so forth. But you don't you just don't get that context, and so. You know, as I said last time, I mean, from the women who in my classes who talked to me, I mean, yeah, it it does seem that a fair number of men who, you know, are otherwise intelligent, thoughtful people are coming away with the impression that this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to choke your partner and pull their hair and call them a bitch and so forth. And without any discussion ahead of time. And that's, that's, there's something really wrong with, with that. I mean, I I just find that so deeply disturbing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it just really upsets me um, that, that, that that's what women are dealing with. So we've been talking for, it looks like 70 minutes now. And do you want to keep talking a little more? Or I yeah, know you said fine. you were, you were no. building something in no. the kitchen. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 the thing I have on my schedule is three o'clock Germany versus France in the women's European soccer championships. So okay. <laughs> that I'm not going to okay. miss. Um, okay. But I can talk well, I for a while. So. I won't keep you that long. So have you read the book? The Denial of Death. I think it's by Ernst Becker. Mm-mm. Well, I think it's a pretty famous book. I don't, I don't know if, if one would classify it as a psychoanalytic book. But one of the things that stuck with me in the text was his evaluation of 
the image of like serpents that are sort of eating their tail mm-hmm. or man's preoccupi- preoccupation with sucking one's own penis. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think what he contended, which at the time I found absolutely ridiculous because I, I was not at all convinced of or interested in psychoanalytic theory, but he thought that we man had this image of sucking his own penis because man wanted to sort of live forever and recreate himself. Uh, that, that, that was also, I think, part of his explanation of homosexuality mm-hmm. is that man loved himself and wanted to be with himself and reproduce himself, even though uh, two men well, I don't. I don't know what I can say politically. What's politically yeah, right. yeah. correct? I don't know. But I'll, I'm going to say that two men can't. Two male-bodied ha- people, anyway. Yeah. Two male-bodied people, yeah. yeah, can't have a baby. So, I am curious about gay porn or queer porn or however we want to call it, whatever we want to call it, compared to straight porn. Is there? Is there much of a distinction between the two as far as academics are concerned or are they treated the same? Do the same issues apply? I kind Um, of, that's a leading question because I've I've seen that that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, some of the issues are similar. Um, I think the, I mean, I, it's been interesting, actually, in, in, in some of these, some in the classes that I've taught on this, you know, to hear perspective of gay male students on stuff like this. And one of the things, I mean, so, I mean, I'm not, you know, it's not my, my subculture, as it were. So I'm kind of going off a lot of what they're telling me. And one of the things that many of them have talked about is the the sort of strength of of this top bottom dichotomy among gay men so you're either a fucker or you're a fucky basically is the distinction um and and people uh align with one it's yeah, not you're that, not, and you're, not you're kind of expected to align i mean so as in the bdsm huh. world there can be people who are switches it's what's the bdsm term right that you kind yeah, of be I've a top that or you can be a bottom and so i think there are you know, people in the gay male world who are, who are switches in that. I don't, I don't know if that's the term they use. Um, but my, yeah, my, my sense from them is that, that you're kind of expected to be one of those two things. And, and the more disturbing thing to them and also to me is that these two roles are not seen as equal. Um, one of them is seen as more desirable in effect than the other or better than the other. And you can guess for yourself which one is seen as the more desirable or better. And in effect, the more masculine of the two roles. This is gender dynamic. This is a something that McKinnon actually, she gets some of it wrong, but she's, she's right about some, a lot of things. And one of the things that she seems to be right about is that there are lots of ways in which kind of gender dynamics continue to play out inside homosexual relationships, um, mm. even though we're talking about two people of the same gender. And the form that seems to take in in a lot of gay male sexuality is this top-bottom dynamic. 
And in yeah, porn, I heard, yeah, go ahead. I, I heard a a, comed- a gay comedian that I like. His name is Tim Dillon. Uh, but I heard him say, mention recently on his podcast that within the gay community, it is highly desirable to be, uh, I think the term he used was straight passing. Mm-hmm. So you don't, if if you don't look like you're gay or don't come off as gay to people's gaydars, that's like yeah. a very attractive thing. And that probably means on, on some level that you appear traditionally masculine. Yeah. Yeah. Presi- yeah. I mean, cause the, yeah, right, sorry the, the, for cutting you off. No, though. cause the contrast, right. Is the sort of limp wristed queer guy. Right. I mean, so mm-hmm. that's the, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, instead of like saying, look, it's fine to be that way, right? People, the gay community itself seems to have embodied this idea. No, you know, we should look like straight people. Um, That's the better thing to do. And so the the thing I was going to mention was that you see this play out in gay porn, that there are lots of, um, so there are particular, some gay male porn stars are tops and other ones are bottoms. And in a way, never the twain shall meet, right? That, and the the and the the people who are the most popular gay male porn stars are the tops, right? They're the, they're the ones that people want to see. And the um, so I mean, I think that's that's a kind of fascinating aspect of gay male pornography. But you also get some of this same kind of violent sort of stuff going on degrading language and slapping and and all the stuff we were talking about before with straight pornography you see in gay pornography as well with many of the same effects um there's a a, a, i think i can't remember there's a paper that i have as an optional reading uh, called gag the fag which is about a website by that title i don't know if it still exists or not but it it involves kind of lots of very degrading stuff to bottoms basically i mean sort of face fucking them until they puke is the kind of thing of the the kind of trope of the website um but um you know so you in in some ways gay male pornography a lot of it is not very different from straight pornography though there is i should say there there also is a kind of i mean i tend to distinguish a bit between queer pornography even queer gay male pornography and kind of mainstream gay male pornography. There are some people out there who are trying to make what you might, I mean, this is not the right terminology, but it gets you in the right ballpark, kind of feminist gay male pornography. Yeah, that's what I, that's what um, I thought you were going to say. And so, you know, and some of that stuff is really, there's a guy named Noel, Noel Alejandro who, who makes just beautiful, just beautiful, beautiful films. Um, and, you know, he, he's gay and his, his characters are, are usually gay. And um, so there is that sort of stuff out there too. Um, in the, you know, so gay male pornography kind of goes, you know, way back um, that almost to the, the beginning of hardcore pornography as we know it, you know, gay men were starting to, to make these sorts of films. Um, and, you know, lesbian pornography, I think is quite, is quite different. Um, it's, it's roots, um, you know, so with lesbian pornography, you get kind of um, lesbian pornography that's made by men for men. Um, hmm. That you know, it's it's not a lot of it's not even kind of real sex. It's just sort of performed. Um, but lesbian pornography made by women for women is kind of queer from the start, 
and is not um, partaking of the same kinds of tropes that that mainstream pornography does um, in the way that that gay male pornography did uh, from the beginning. So we we talked a bit about how philosophy might lend or philosophers might lend insight into discussions of pornography. So one of the papers, again, that you've cited is called When Selves Have Sex, mm-hmm. What the Phenomenology of Transsexuality Can Teach About Sexual Orientation. Yeah, totally and so I don't know too much about phenomenology. I sat in on a few uh, lectures about it. But so before you tell me what the phenomenology of transsexuality can teach about sexual orientation, can you say a bit about just what phenomenology is to begin with? I wish I could. (laughs) Well, here's what comes to to mind for me. Because we read the beginning of Husserl, Mm -hmm. and what I sort of recall it being was sort of throw out everything you think you know about the world, everything, and then you take sort of what you see, what you feel, what you experience. That's the only data you have to work with, Mm -hmm. and you sort of construct uh, a philosophy of the world or experience based on that. Yeah, so one of the things that's been interesting about doing this work is that, you know, I given what I've mostly done, unsurprisingly, you know, I kind of grew up in the analytic philosophy world. Yeah, and so different. That's, you know, just that I'm, you know, kind of hardcore analytic philosopher uh, for most of my life. And, you know, was very dismissive about a lot of continental philosophy without knowing anything about it, you know, just fessing up um, that, you know, to, to my earlier attitudes. But, you know, and I, I still find a great deal of it to be kind of, pointlessly obscure uh, and so forth. But on the other hand, I've, I've, I've learned that there are tremendous insights in a lot of this work. Um, I think Michel Foucault's history of sexuality is just pure genius as far as I'm concerned, um, though it has its moments of pointless obscurity too. Um, and so I've started to learn a bit more about this. Um, so I, I tend to think of phenomenology as kind of the way you describe it, that it sort of pays tremendous attention to the kind of fine structure of experience and tries to develop insight out of that. So in that paper, there's a kind of, um, well, one way to think of what Betcher is arguing there um, is that, and I think she does this in another paper too, is that, so there was a movement some years ago to stop talking about sexual orientation in as sort of homosexuality or heterosexuality, but rather to focus it on the gender of your object, of your sexual object choice, as people put it. Yeah. So that you're gynocentric or androcentric. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, my, my sister is identifies as queer and she's getting married this summer to a somebody who I think identifies as a woman and is woman bodied. And I referred to, I'm, I'm officiating the wedding. Mm. I'm now a reverend and I Uh. referred to it as a lesbian wedding. And I was corrected that it was not a lesbian wedding at all. And then my sister and I went through all of the different uh, like 
queer, lesbian, the, the various uh-huh. terms. And even though my sister is getting married to a woman, I don't think that she would have any problem with me saying this publicly. She finds some men or other people attracted, attractive uh-huh. as well. And because she has, I think of this like, with as like sets or uh, ordered pairs with relations mm-hmm. uh, but because the the second in the tuple could be a a, a, a man or a woman she's not lesbian she's mm-hmm. queer even if she identifies as a woman herself mm-hmm. so, so yeah sorry if i ju- just no, went yeah, off on too big of a tangent yeah so so a lot of so people would so the older and I think this is actually still true that this kind of established way of thinking about this among theorists of sexuality would say they would kind of focus on the fact that she's attracted to both men and women or, you know, whatever, and, and kind of leave her gender out of the equation. Right. So that it doesn't matter whether she's a man or a woman or identifies as nine binary or whatever. The only thing sexual orientation is about who she's attracted to. And what Betcher argues in that paper is that that, that, it's, that we shouldn't leave out the gender of the person in question, that there can be something about the experience of being a woman having sex with a woman can be quite different from the experience of being a man having sex with a woman, even though, right, the, the gender of the person that you're attracted to is constant in those cases. So, and I think... Betcher herself is a, is a trans woman, and so, you know, to some extent speaks from experience, right? In in that, you know, she continues to have sex with women women after she's transitioned, and she tries to describe like what the difference is. You know, how is it different to have sex as a woman, in effect, than to have sex as a man? And one of the things she focuses on in that paper is, um. I can't remember how she describes this, but basically the kind of different parts of the of your own body that are kind of eroticized. Um, so, right as a as a as a woman, your your chest is much more erotically loaded than your chest is is as a man, and be letting someone see your chest is a sexual act for a woman in a way that it's not for a man, um, and. So she she's very interested in the kind of, again, we've just kind of goes back to the Nagel thing before, the kind of interplay that happens between two people as they're, you know, different, as I, as I share parts of my body with someone. And that can be a part of my sexual experience that is a function of my gender uh, and not just the gender of the person that I'm having sex with. So that's that's part, that's the kind of, main point of the paper um but yeah it's it's really fascinating she's she's very interesting uh writer on these topics yeah i that's neat i like that so huh there is one other topic that i'd really like to talk about today okay so hmm. are you familiar with the name jordan peterson Mm-hmm. Yep. So he, I think he he once taught at Harvard too, uh, and was most recently at the University of Toronto. But he is, for good reason, uh, very much 
maligned by a lot of people, but I also think he has done a lot of very interesting work. Uh, he made the Bible interesting to me in some mm-hmm. some lectures I heard. But most recently, he did something pretty tasteless, which was he he posted on Twitter an image of like the most recent Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, which has a, a quote unquote plus size model on the mm-hmm. cover, and he tweeted. Uh, something to the effect. Well, here I can just Google it to make sure that I get the get it right. Jordan Peterson, Sports Illustrated. <sighs> Sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. So. It seems like at not well. I don't know if there if this is much discussed in pornography, but at least in philosophy of sex, it seems like there's been a lot of work in on on fatness mm-hmm. or people's tastes in different mm-hmm. types of body. Yeah. Uh, at one paper, it looked like getting back to Aristotle, talk about taste and habituation. Yeah, Annie. So, paper. Yeah. Uh, have you worked on this at all? Or- so I, we do. I have not worked on it myself, um, but I, I do find it quite interesting. And I, I think this sort of the paper you're referring to is a paper by Ann Eaton, who teaches at University of Illinois Chicago, called "Taste and Bodies and Fat Oppression." And yeah. that paper. So she argues in that paper that the aesthetic undesirability of fat bodies is an important component of the oppression of fat people. Um, And she goes, I mean, one of the contributions it made for me was just to make me fully aware of just how much, how many things there are that oppress fat people. And, um, and I, Can you I, I give think, me some examples? So, I mean, fat people have a very hard time accessing health care, um, for example, that the medical establishment will often is often not well equipped to to care for them. Um, and this is just a matter of, as far as I can tell, laziness that you know, gowns not being big enough for them in doctor's offices, tables and chairs not being big enough for them. I mean, there are all just all kinds of sort of very simple things like that, that, that fat people have, you know, make it difficult for fat people to access healthcare. Um, I mean, on the other kind of end of the scale are issues about travel, like on airplanes and buses and things like that, seats not being suitable size uh, for them being forced to pay extra to travel on airplanes uh, because they might occupy more than one normal size seat or, you know, typical size seat. Um, there are all, you know, all kinds of things like this um, that, that, that Anne just sort of details uh, in, in that paper. Uh, and then I should say she herself is a very athletic, you know, thin sort of person. So she, she's not, um, this is not something she speaks to from experience, at least personal experience. Um, but, you know, as I say, she sort of goes on to argue that that the sort of, so she, most of her own work is in aesthetics. Um, and she actually has a 
joint she has two PhDs, one in art history and one in philosophy from the both from Chicago. Um and she she goes on to argue, as I said, that that the the sort of fact that fat people are seen as ugly uh in the way that that quote uh illustrates is is not just a kind of aspect in a way of of this oppressive structure but is part of what reinforces it and maintains it that it that fat people that so she she mentions other data right for example that the the more attractive you're seen to be the higher your pay is likely to be um even if your job has absolutely nothing to do with being attractive, right? Like being a model or a Hollywood actress or something, right? It just, this is what people sometimes call lookism nowadays, that people who are more attractive just have all kinds of advantages, social advantages over people who aren't seen as attractive. And fat people as a class are generally seen as unattractive uh, and therefore suffer both from those particular, you know, from that general structure, but also from more specific things. And so, you know, I, I do think that she's, um, you know, the other thing that, the big, I remember talking to Anne about this paper once, and she, she told me that when she was giving it, you know, presenting it at Colloquia and stuff before it was published, people would often ask her in the discussion something like, you know, are you saying that I should find fat people attractive? Are you saying that like I, it's bad of me not to find fat people attractive? I should do something to like change who I find attractive. And she was kind of pulled two ways about this. I mean, on the one hand, she was thinking, well, you know, you can't really control who you find attractive. I mean, you know, that's that was decided when you were, you know, two years older or something. So it's it's not like she thinks everybody needs to go on a kind of personal transformation project to 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 change you know who they find attractive but then on the other hand she wanted she wanted to say well but yes on the other hand i mean shouldn't we be aware of the harm i mean if she's right that that this kind of collective distaste for fat bodies is doing but shouldn't we also be conscious of the fact that this is you know, the, these are preferences that have been socially shaped uh, by forces that have their own interests in a way. Um, so, you know, one can think, I pair this paper with, um, when we when we read it, with a pair, with a couple of papers on, um, on sort of sexual fetishes for Asian people, um, so so-called yellow fever. And the, those papers talk a lot about ways in which, um, you know, kind of Western attitudes about Asian people and appearance and exoticness and stuff kind of affect, you know, negatively affect the experience of Asian women in particular, but I think also Asian men. Um, so, I mean, there are, you know, the, the term in the gay world is rice queens. I mean, white men who are attracted to Asian women or Asian men. Um, and so all, all of these papers kind of raise these questions about, you know, what do we, what, what should we do with the fact that, you know, we, we do kind of find ourselves saddled with these erotic preferences that are shaped by social forces that we may not 
agree with, you know, <laughs> sort of when you realize. So I had a, I mentioned several times about sort of hearing from my students about stuff like this, but I remember I've had several students kind of come to me and say, you know, I thought I liked, so these are women again, I, you know, I thought I liked it when guys kind of slapped me and called me a bitch and stuff. But now that I think about it and kind of realize where that's coming from and stuff, I don't know if I like it anymore. You know, or I, you know, I do like it, but I don't want to like it, uh, is, is what one woman said. And that's, again, you know, that's the sort of, it's the opposite way with the fat woman, right? It's sort of, yeah, I, I don't find her attractive, but I kind of wish I did or something. And it's, it's, that's a kind of tough position to be in. I mean, what do, what do you do with, with, with things like that? I, I'm not, I'm not sure I've seen, I've not seen my way through this yet. Yeah, as somebody who likes to sit down and watch the mirror game with a quart of ice cream, I found myself the other day wishing that uh, fatness could become attractive so that I could give up exercising and <laughs> devote more of my more of yeah. my energy to ice cream. Yeah, but I'm a big ice cream person too. So <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if I mean one of the reasons that this issue uh, inspires so much vitriol the way that Jordan Peterson's or as Jordan Peterson's tweet reflects is that our sexual preferences seem so strongly ingrained in us that they, mm -hmm. they seem biological. It's almost like telling somebody that, no, that's not red. It's green. Just look, look at it. It's green. Yeah. Uh, so it, and it really does feel that way. It doesn't, mm -hmm. when I look at uh, somebody I find attractive, I don't have the feeling that it's an option to mm -hmm. choose. And yeah. so I wonder, because I, I'm not familiar with the literature or the physiology of it, but being told that it's is something that is socially shaped just rings contrary to my experience of the of the issue yeah i mean i think it's you know uh, my sense is that these things are it's it's also part i mean i think foucault is big on this actually that we we both experience these things as kind of not something we choose but also as kind of very much part of who we are as people right like so think about sexual orientation right i mean people think of this as part of their identity, right? I mean, that you're attracted mm -hmm. to men instead of women or women instead of men. That's, we, we sort of think of that as very much part of who we are as human beings. And so in, in one paper, I think this is in the Yellow Fever paper, one of the objections that she considers uh, when she's talking about this is that, well, what about gender, right? I mean, so so she's worried about like men who are attracted to Asian women, and oftentimes this attraction is kind of rooted in stereotypes about Asian women that are really like of, of being submissive and all these kinds of things. And so she's, she's arguing in that paper that, you know, this is a not, you know, to minus third approximation or something that, you know, people shouldn't be attracted to Asian women because they're Asian, uh, that there's something wrong about that. There's something roughly speaking racist about that and one of the objections she considers is that 
well, what about gender, right? Lots of people, some people are attracted to men instead of women and women instead of men. Should you think that it's sort of somehow sexist of us to be attracted to someone for gender to play that much of a role in our attraction to somebody? And she suggests in that paper and other people have suggested as well that actually the answer should be yes. <laughs> actually, gender should not. Uh, as long as gender is an important component of of who we find attractive, that makes gender a factor in social in the social world that <clears throat> that it shouldn't be. Um, and I, I don't again, I, I don't know what I want to say about this. Um, but that's in a way the hardest case, right? That um, because that is the element of kind of sexual attraction and um, and and sexually you know, what we call sexual orientation that is in a way most deeply ingrained, like the gender of the people that you're attracted to. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know whether there's a line you can draw here between the fat case and the gender case or whether they really are just two versions of the same thing. Well, returning to the fat case for a moment, because I don't think that there is an analog here. Are you familiar with the, uh, well, I imagine it's it's crossed uh, your mind or what you've read at some point, uh, with the subgenre of pornography called, uh, well, I don't know if it has a title, but it involves a, a quote-unquote feeder? Mm -mm. At least so, not yet. Yeah, so uh, a feeder is typically a smaller man who has a very obese uh, woman partner who hmm. in the pornography involves him feeding her vast quantities of food. I see. So, but you haven't encountered no, that. No, I have. This is one that's uh, new to me. <laughs> yeah, that one's really fascinating to me. As I think about it right now, it, I sort of think of him as like a subservient mm -hmm. aunt to like his queen, mm -hmm. uh, like the queen in the colony uh -huh. and he's bringing her food. But okay, right. I was going to, I was going to ask if you, if you had encountered that in the literature or anything and if anybody had thoughts on that because for me uh disclosure this is not a sexual fetish but i am mm -hmm. like so obsessed with food that like mm -hmm. if i'm on a diet or something uh i will like sniff other people's food if they will uh -huh. allow me to at times or i'll mm -hmm. i'll watch them eat um i was on a very intense diet uh, a, a couple of months ago and i found myself watching videos of people binge eating on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And there was, again, like no sexual component to this, but right. there's like sort of a, a kinship or a similarity there to people who mm -hmm. watch this pornography. So I was, I was hoping for some mm -hmm. insight into what's going on. No, that but one's new to me. I guess I'll have to look elsewhere. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. There's actually not, <clears throat> excuse me. Hold on a sec. Sorry. Just, um, I hope I haven't made you sick. No, I, I have really bad allergies. So it's, mm. I just, and especially in the, this time of year, just my, I'm constantly congested and stuff. So, <clears throat> and I get, you know, post-nasal drip. So that's why I, I seem a bit hoarse. I mean, the, the one, so race has been written a lot about in, in the kind of literature on pornography because interracial porn, we talked about this a bit last time is, can be so, problematic but there's not as much yet anyway that i that i've come across on on disability i've seen a couple of papers on that um you know amputee oh, porn. disabled yeah porn. 
Yeah, it's like I mean, there's that's there's one a, I hadn't what, encountered, but imagine yeah. existed. <clears throat> yeah, there's a am- amputee fetish disabled, you know, kind of porn is goes way back. Um, and again, I you know I've seen a few things, very rare again, you know, really rare porn, uh, kind of more you know what you might think of as more progressive porn featuring disabled people. That is really 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 unusual. Um, I've seen a little bit of that occasionally um i've seen more sort of fat positive porn um that that there are several people who have who have made that kind of porn um i think most famously a woman named courtney trouble um who who is herself a a, a, you know a fat woman who makes some really amazing uh stuff but not many people have written about that um the the paper by eaton actually is is one of the only things i know on kind of erotics and and fat bodies it's it's not well it's not much studied okay well thanks again for another wonderful conversation this is sure uh, so great productive and enlightening for me so and i really think that this is an underexplored and under talked about topic. So I imagine the people who listen to this will also find it uh, pretty eye opening and illuminating about something sex that's, and for some people, pornography where it's, that's a big part of their life. So thanks yeah. again for, sure. for joining. Yeah. I, th- I do think there's been, there's a, it's kind of a growth industry. I think, I think there are more people, I think over the next 10 years or so, we're going to start to see a lot of work on this kind of thing. I know several people, um, Carrie, Carrie uh, Ishikawa Jenkins has, has been working on more philosophy of love and stuff, but she and, and her partner, Jonathan, have been writing some stuff in this area. And, and I think they've got some students at UBC who are doing this kind of thing. I've had some students who are interested in this, and I think we're going to see a lot more on this in the next decade or so. Okay. Well, here's the part where I sort of like do a fake goodbye and say until next time, but (laughs) I'm really just going to stop recording. So thanks again. Okay. Take care. I have recorded this about 10 times because I'm just so bad at asking for help. But if you could like, subscribe, comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on, that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that I have an audience. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me.